You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Well, welcome everybody. It's just another normal day in ODI. <laughs> Former Secretary Generals and Presidents right in front of me. Uh, it's good, just to say first of all, good evening and a, and a huge welcome to everybody here. This, this evening's event is co-hosted with the Elders and I'm delighted to welcome both the members of the Elders who are here as well as members of their uh, advisory council to, to be here in ODI. And it's a, I can say from the bottom of my heart, it's really a huge privilege to, to have all of you here. As many of you will know, the elders were initially brought together by Nelson Mandela, united by their sh shared commitment to advance the cause of universal human rights, peace and justice, and by their conviction that we can all make a difference. And as a group, you inspire us all to work for change. Uh, I just wanted to say by way of introductory remarks that institutions can take hundreds of years <coughs> to develop. We have one just down the road here by Big Ben that is celebrating its 800th birthday this year. And it's got to where it is by root of a couple of civil wars uh, centuries of constitutional dialogue, stroke, gridlock, and the occasional beheading. <laughs> but between you, the, the elders, you've created an institution in your own lifetimes. And you've done so, I think, not just through what you've achieved individually, but through what you stand for collectively and the values that you represent. Values which, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, reflect the best of humanity and provide us with a reminder of what we're capable of. Uh, we have with us eight of the elders, and if I were to um, read even a summary form of their CVs, we would be here for a very long time, and I would probably be carted off before I got <laughs> halfway through. So in order to avoid that, I just wanted to give you a very summary form of the uh, achievements of, of, of our guests. Uh, Marty Atisari, former president of Finland, not only oversaw Namibia's transition to independence, but played a key role in negotiating an end to hostilities in Kosovo and founded the Crisis Management Initiative. Brahami, sorry, Brahimi, who we'll be hearing from shortly, fought for his country's independence, became foreign minister, and subsequently built a distinguished career as a conflict mediator and UN diplomat. His report uh, in 2000 on US peace operations was path-breaking in its day, and I think retains uh, an extraordinary relevance and resonance for our own time. Grohalen Brundtland, who was Norway's first, prime, uh, first woman prime minister, was also the person who, I think more than anybody, put the concept of sustainable development on the international agenda uh, and, and provided a catalyst that really challenged policymakers and reframed the relationship between ecology and economy, and who through le her leadership of the World Health Organization has helped to establish health as, as a basic human right. President Jimmy Carter uh, has been a tireless and courageous champion of human rights throughout his life, working also for democracy and conflict resolution. 
He's extraordinarily well-traveled, actually. He's observed elections, 83 elections in 34 countries. Uh, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2002 for his efforts to promote peace building. He's the only US president to receive the Nobel Prize uh, out of off after leaving office. And apart from his work in promoting peace and democracy, the Carter Center has provided a sustained leadership that has brought uh, the guinea worm disease close to eradication, which is uh, an extraordinary achievement that has improved millions of lives uh, uh, across Africa. Uh, Hinad Jilani, who's a leading activist who founded the Pakistan, uh, Pakistan's first all-woman all law firm and the National Human Rights Commission. She was UN Special Representative on Human Rights uh, and awarded the Millennium Peace Prize for Women in 2001. Uh, Mary, Mary Robinson, the first woman president of Ireland, has been a source of inspiration for many people around the world, including me, I have to say. Uh, as UN Commissioner for Human Rights, she demonstrated the power of human rights as a vehicle for achieving change. And both through her own foundation and as a UN Special Envoy for Climate Change, she has put climate justice at the center of the debate on climate change, reminding governments around the world that it is the poor and the marginalized who will be hit hardest and earliest by global warming. Uh, Ernesto Zadillo, a former president of Mexico, led transformative reforms at home and has championed the cause of inclusive globalization. Um, over the past decade, we've all, I think, become increasingly aware of the role of conditional cash transfer programs in lifting millions of people out of poverty. Uh, we sometimes forget, I think, that the prototype for those programs was Progressa in Mexico, and it was introduced on his watch. Uh, he's also tirelessly campaigned for causes from nuclear non-proliferation to drugs policy reform and financing for development that address the great challenges of our age. The preamble of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights calls on everyone to work for the rights and freedoms at the core of human dignity, equality, peace and justice. I think collectively you, more than anyone, have answered that call and you're an inspiration to all of us. Uh, I also wanted to welcome uh, Lise Doucette, who is uh, a friend of ODI, but also someone who, in her own work, I think really reflects the values and the commitments that all of you stand for. Uh, Lise is the BBC's... Sorry, you're allowed to applause. <laughs> I'll have to remind them to put in stop, wait for applause. <laughs> uh, Lise is the BBC's chief international correspondent and she'll, as I said, chair this evening's event. Uh, I'm really pleased to see so many friends here this evening. I would like to welcome those of you who are watching the event live around the world. Uh, please do follow the event on Twitter using the hashtag, um, hashtag capital M, capital E, crisis. Uh, this evening's event will begin with an introduction by Kofi Annan, who's the chair of the Elders. He really doesn't need any introduction, but uh, Mr. Annan was Secretary General of the UN from 1997 to 2006. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace jointly with the United Nations, quote, for their work for a better organized and more peaceful world. This is the world that Mr. Annan has worked tirelessly to create. He was the force behind the Millennium Development Goals and the Global Health Fund. His influence led to UN member states accepting a responsibility to protect citizens. He oversaw the strengthening of the UN peacekeeping, of UN peacekeeping, 
and the establishment of two intergovernmental bodies, the Peace Building Commission and the Human Rights Council. And his Global Compact Initiative remains the world's largest effort to promote corporate social responsibility. Both in office and since leaving office, Mr. Nan has used his experience to mediate and resolve conflict. In 2012, he served as the UN Arab League Joint Special Envoy on the Syria crisis. Um, I could go on his chair of the Africa Progress Panel and many, many other things. He, he, he also has formidable persuasive powers, which I've been on the sharp end of <laughs> a, couple, a couple of times. So, uh, Mr. Nan, it's a, it's a huge privilege for us to have you here, and uh, I'd, I'd like to pass it over to you now, if I may. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Kevin. And I think uh, you should be careful going around saying one doesn't need introduction. <laughs> you know, there, there's a story, Nan, and some of you have heard it enough, where we were taking holidays in Como, and we were traveling incognito. We, we really wanted to have peace and quiet. And we walked into a, and we thought we had succeeded until we went into a shop to get a newspaper. And we saw a group of men st staring at us. And one of them broke away and walked straight to me and put his hand out and said, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> May I have an autograph? <laughs> so I said, sure. <laughs> and I signed K. Freeman. He was happy. We were happy. <laughs> and we continued incognito. So, that would teach you to go around thinking everybody knows who you are. <laughs> no, it's really wonderful to be with you uh, here this evening. We, the elders, are very grateful that you decided to organize this event uh, with us. Obviously, Middle East is a very topical issue. It's an issue that is consuming not just the region, but the whole world. Um, as a former Secretary General of the United Nations, I know both the human cost of wars and extremism across the Middle East. In the past, when one talked of Middle East, you were limiting yourself to Israel and Palestine. Today, when you talk of Middle East, it's a whole region. In fact, you may even begin in North Africa, going through the region all the way to Pakistan. There are problems everywhere. There are problems everywhere that we need to uh, try to stop. Conflicts can only be resolved effectively by addressing the root causes uh, of the problem. In the Middle East and in many other cases, this comes down to the borders and definitions of nation states that were defined in an earlier period in the colonial era. 100 years after the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916, the borders and nation states it defined are almost near collapse. I saw this firsthand as former Secretary General, as former envoy for Syria, as uh, Kevin uh, mentioned. The disintegration of borders and established states' relations has wrought a terrible cost in terms of war, terror, internally displaced people, and refugees. 
Today we have with us one man, he's the only one I know who made peace in Middle East and made it stuck, President Carter. You're the only one who's done that. <laughs> Many have tried after you. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not been, it's not been easy. Of course, LACTA did TAF agreement. But <clears throat> what I, I want us to focus on is, the, is that if we are going to resolve the crisis in the Middle East, it's not only the U.S. and the Russians who have to work together. They need to bring in the regional powers, Syrians, I mean, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, possibly Qatar, which is funding quite a lot of these things. Because unless they make a common cause and discover that they have a common danger, we share a common danger, which if we don't come together to resolve, we will never be able to contain this uh, uh, crisis. Europe, after the 30-year war, realized that they had a common danger. They needed to come together, and they met in Westphalia, and we got the Westphalia Agreement. Will the countries in the Middle East have their Westphalia moment? and find a way out of this? Can they do it alone? What help should countries like Russia and the US bring to, to bear? They are working better now, and I hope it will continue. And uh, they will be able to work and bring the regional countries together to make peace for the sake of the region, for the sake of the Syrians, who are today suffering interminably. And of course, quite a lot of the fighting going on in Syria has nothing to do with Syrians. You have lots of proxy wars and lots of people trying to uh, promote their own uh, agendas. And I, I hope this evening we are going to have a, a fantastic discussion, probably some ideas of how we can come out of this may image. It doesn't matter how small the idea is, but hopefully we will put some seats forward. So let me get out of the way so that Liz Gisette can continue this for you. Thank you very much, Kofi Annan, and, and thank you to, to all of you who have gathered here today with the, uh, to be in the presence of all these extraordinary people who call themselves or who others call the elders. But let us describe them in the way that Nelson Mandela wanted them to be known when he first set up the elders, wise men and wise women of our time. And I think for the purpose of our discussion tonight and for all of you, the hundreds of you who are with us in wherever you are around the world, you're also the wise men and women of our time because we are living uh, in the Middle East in what we call, journalists call it, a defining moment, but such a moment that is hard to define, hard to understand, harder still for us all to watch it unfold, and hardest of all, how to resolve it. Look across the region. It is, as the British say, we are where we are. Where are we? Fragile, failing, and failed states. And in what Kofi Annan nodded to what the essential conflict, the first conflict of the Middle East that we worried about for decades, the two-state solution 
fast slipping away from us. But we also want to remind ourselves tonight that this is not just a question, a crisis among states. This is a crisis among the peoples of the region where social fabrics are being torn apart and where the dreams of an entire generation are being ripped away. None of us in this room can say we didn't know what was happening because the people of the region, no longer waiting for our aid, our engagement, our help, are coming to our door. And we're seeing that in this refugee crisis. So I think it's only fitting that before I go to our distinguished panelists, both Lakhtar and Hina, who have been introduced, as well as Just, who heads the Middle East and North Africa program at the crisis, International Crisis Group, and Sarah, who heads the ODI's um, humanitarian policy, um, looking at humanitarian policy. We're going to look first at a film that the elders have prepared, working with UNHCR, looking at the refugee crisis, because let us listen to the people of the region and what they tell us, what they ask of us as they are fleeing for their lives. في كثير من الناس بتخاطر بحياتها بين ايدين المهربين للجوء لاوروبا لو كنت مكاني هل لديك خيارات اخرى putting one's life in the hands of smugglers is very dangerous is very expensive it is of course extremely unfortunate unacceptable condemnable that there are people who, instead of helping the refugees, take advantage of them. The only real alternative is to demonstrate that there is a legal pathway for refugees to get to safety, and they don't have to put themselves in the hands of smugglers. I think that there are two options here. One is to multiply these alternative pathways, to give more options for resettlement, scholarships, humanitarian visas, family reunification. And the other important option is to provide more assistance to those countries that host large numbers of refugees and to the refugees themselves. I'm confident that there will be peace. I can't tell you when, but it is important that the United States, the Russian Federation, and the regional powers work together at the cessation of hostilities hold and the peace process in Geneva succeeds. Peace will determine the ultimate solution to this massive displacement of refugees. People in Europe should know that we are fleeing in search of safety for ourselves and our families. What can be done to make them understand that better? We need to talk about this. We need to dispel the image that refugees are something we should be afraid of. Europe should understand that most of the refugees coming out from Syria and others are really seeking safety and protection. There shouldn't be that kind of amnesia which makes us forget what happened after World War II, where the whole world opened up its arms to receive 
European refugees. It is very, very important that we understand the importance of uh, receiving them, of uh, offering them opportunities in countries of asylum, and not erecting walls to keep them away from us. What has happened to compassion, empathy, solidarity? Morally, we have an obligation to help each other and respect the sanctity of life. Every government decides how to welcome or not welcome visitors of any sort, and in particular refugees. I think Europe, with a population of 500 million, should be able to absorb the numbers of refugees we are talking about. Uh, UNHCR has been promoting the notion that alternative pathways to uh, safety, to admission to third countries, to places where refugees can be taken care of in a better way, especially vulnerable ones. The solution is the return of uh, peace and stability to Syria and the possibility for Syrians to go back home. But it is not a problem for Europe alone. It's a global problem and other countries should be able to help. From America to Asia to Africa, we are in this together. We're in this together, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm afraid that is the reality. We can no longer say that Syria's war is about Syria. It stopped long ago being just about Syria. It is everyone's war now. And as Kofi Annan says, we cannot just see this as a black canvas that nothing can be done. And I always like to say that when you're in the blackest of holes, the lights that shine, as small as they are, shine very brightly. And I think this is what we want to do with all of your experience and insight and wisdom that we've gathered here today. We'd like to try to move this discussion on a little bit. And I know Lockter doesn't want to be the one uh, to start off, but we've decided you will be the one to start off with. Um, and um, I always remember uh, when Lockter was the, the United Nations envoy, he was always apologizing to the Syrians in his very humble uh, Lockter way and apologizing on behalf of the world that I'm sorry that we simply could not do more to help you. And similarly with Kofi Annan, we're very privileged that we have two former envoys who did their best. But let us try to pick up on one of the things that Kofi Annan talked about and one of the things that you worked very hard for, Lakhtar Brahimi, in looking at how to resolve the Syrian crisis, because maybe there are insights there that can be applicable in some of the other problems in the Middle East. And Lakhtar, if I may say, Lakhtar used to talk about the three circles. The first, of course, the one that matters most of all, which is the Syrians themselves, bitterly divided, even more divided than when Kofi Annan was there and when Lakhtar Brahimi was there. The second level circle was that of the regional powers, and the divisions among them are even worse than during your time. The third one, and this is where you both spent a lot of your time and where Stefan de Mastura has as well, is the top level. Moscow and Washington. Sadly, new Cold War. But we are seeing some progress that the, right up to the level of Vladimir Putin and Barack Obama in trying to agree the ceasefire, which had a little bit of success, was holding, fell apart, and is going again. You looked at that so closely, Lakhtar, for years. Do you see in that high level, no other crisis in the world has that much attention at that high of a level, right up to the pres two presidents. Do you see that continuing to have an impact? Is that enough? It's not enough. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think both Kofi and I realized, you know, as you said, that uh, neither the Syrians themselves nor their neighbors were capable of uh, really doing something, uh, something uh, positive and successful to uh, put an end to that crisis. Um, yes, I think we, 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 we saw and we worked very, very hard to bring the Russians and the Americans together. They did come together in spite of Ukraine and other problems. Uh, but I don't think, uh, my impression is that they, they do know what needs to be done. Uh, they maybe agree on uh, that that is the way to go. But they are held up by uh, considerations that have little to do with Syria. Uh, in particular, the, 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 the situation in the, in, in the region and the divisions that exist in the region, uh, each of these two governments uh, have uh, allies in the region and also outside of the region uh, who are pulling them uh, back. And I think the call is, uh, you know, this is the worst crisis of this time. Um, you know, the, the country has been destroyed uh, like no other country that has uh, uh, known a similar crisis, with the difference perhaps of Afghanistan at a certain time. Uh, so, you know, a, a, a solution is, is absolutely urgent. The Europeans, I'm sorry to say, have started to realize this only when people started knocking at their door. Uh, there's nothing new uh, uh, today that was not there some years ago. Ask the, the, the Jordanians, ask the, uh, the, the, the Lebanese or, or, or the uh, Turks, and a lot of other countries who have received hundreds of thousands, millions of refugees. So I think the, the problem is known. The, the, the way to go is known. The people who can really pull this together and, and bring slowly everybody uh, to a table to uh, stop, you know, I mean, do a little bit more than what has been done about just a partial uh, ceasefire that's not even holding properly. I think you can do much better than that. Stop the conflict and, 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 and start, you know, walking away from, from, from the brink of where we are. It is, uh, it is doable. I think we must be grateful to Lavrov and, and Kerry for uh, you, you know, their persistence and trying to work together, but we expect more from them. This phrase, stop the conflict, I mean, I think everyone and most of all the Syrians, uh, at least the Syrians who are not on one warring side or the other, would like to stop the conflict. I mean, it's quite extraordinary what Moscow and Washington have been able to do. I thought of both of you when the gridlock was broken in the Security Council, and that was one of the main reasons why you left Kofi Annan, that it was not just the problems on the ground in Syria, it was the UN, which you spent so much time in, the gridlock. It was broken last December with that with a resolution about a, trans a plan for call it transition, at least evolving towards something different. So they did that. They did get a ceasefire that both of you worked so hard for. So there was progress, but how do you move then to what you've just asked for? Is it really within their grasp? Yeah, it is absolutely within their grasp. Uh, yeah, no, the thing is, you know, my suspicion is that Kerry, Lavrov, and the people around them know perfectly well what needs to be done. They, they know that perfectly well. 
uh, and they would like to do it. The thing is that they are prisoners of, uh, you know, alliances that they have built, uh, in all the alliances that existed, and the alliances that they have built at the beginning of the conflict when they had the wrong analysis of what was happening. You know, when, you know, the idea was, you know, everybody was talking about the day after, meaning that, you know, the, uh, the regime is fallen, is going to fall tomorrow, perhaps at the latest the day after tomorrow, so let's see what, what, what we need to do. And it has taken them five years to realize that this is not going to happen. They have, re they have realized that now. We, we, I think they have now to overcome that, uh, you know, the consequences of those wrong analysis and wrong understanding and wrong policies built on that understanding. Uh, you know, they have got to, to walk away from that and, and build a new policy. They know exactly what it is on, on the realities that exist and on the needs of the Syrian people, please, not on the needs of anybody else. Uh, and if the, the, the interests of the Syrian people is served, everybody else's interests will be served, whether it is the, the Europeans who are terribly afraid of uh, these uh, uh, migrants and, and, and refugees, or the neighbors who have all sorts of problems, real and imaginary, and their problems will be solved if the Syrian uh, are satisfied with the, uh, how, how, how this problem is starting to be solved. I mean, that's really good to hear that you think they, they do know, they do know what has to be done and possibly could, could, could do it, you know, obviously with, with, the, with the other actors. As we all know in Britain, what was said about the experience in Northern Ireland is that it only worked because all of the sides recognized there was no longer a military solution. They recognized that there, it wasn't, it, they could not win militarily. I don't know whether they're there yet in Syria. You still have President Assad talking about an all right out victory. You still have such a dizzying array of groups. But I want to move to you, Hina, now and to pick up on Lakhtar's stop the conflict. We are living in a time where never have we had so many ways to tell people there are consequences if you continue to fight a war as if there were no rules in war. And never, I think, have we seen a conflict where international humanitarian law is being violated day in, day out. You know, talk about war crimes prosecutions, you know, invoking of the norms of responsibility to protect, lots of statements, but no action. When you see all that as a, you know, a prominent lawyer, you've dealt with some of those issues in, in Pakistan as well. Do you see any power within that to try to bring this process along? Yes, I do see the power. That's why these institutions were created and these values were built and developed over so many years. Uh, see how much uh, uh, you know, uh, time has been taken to develop these norms. Now, you talk about universal values of human rights. If there is a, an international community, that international community got constructed around these values. And this is the core of the belief that, that in any way justifies the term international community. But what we forget is that universal human rights are as important as the realization that if there is a universality of human rights, then there is a universal universality in the duty to protect. And if you forget that responsibility, then the uh, international community is either 
lacking the will to uh, uh, realize that that responsibility is a collective responsibility to save people's lives, to give dignity to people who are going through a crisis, and to find solutions that dignify people and do not uh, deprive them of not just the means of subsistence, but also the very important core human right, which is the right to dignity. And I think what we see right now is not just an influx of people who have lost homes, who are in terrible conditions, uh, there are, they have rights which are not respected, but at the same time, the way that they are referred to, I think that's very disparaging. Hmm. And I think that when you, you say, you, you just talk about the refugee crisis, these refugees are actual persons. Hmm. Every one of them is a, an individual who has these rights. Secondly, you, you talk about creation of institutions. I think it's an important point that you make because these institutions, their very existence gives us the hope that things will be done. Yet, when there are so many of these institutions, uh, everybody thinks it's somebody else's responsibility to take care of this problem. The most authoritative mandate on peace and security and accountability for gross human rights violations that are the cause and effect of human rights violations, uh, the, the cause and effect of conflict, then it is the first, the first thing that we look for is action on the part of the Security Council. Well, this is it. I mean, what is, I mean, in terms of the toolbox the world has now, is there anything which is not being used that could be used? Because we have seen in the Balkans War, we, you know, in the, the court for the former Yugoslavia, we have seen in Liberia that criminals do go to court, that there is an end to impunity, but it's long after the wars have ended. And unfortunately, you know, Syrian war, as so many have said, if Syria's war goes on much longer, there's not going to be a Syria anymore. So what in the world's toolbox could still be used? What could happen at the UN Security no, Council? In the world's toolbox, these tools are eventually used. The point is, if you use, don't use them at the right time in order to deflate conflict, and in order to deter the uh, political shenanigans that go behind the causing of conflict. Mm -hmm. And people have some sense that there is somewhere accountability, which is very serious, and it will happen. Then I think the institutions lose the credibility that we need to give to them yes. so that we can, we can uh, eventually depend on these tools to work. Okay. Okay, so we have Dr. Brahimi telling us they know what to do and could do it. We have Hina Jalani saying we have the institutions and they could work. But let's for a moment say, sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> what do we do? We turn to the International Crisis Group, who will tell us <laughs> what to do. So let's say for the moment that they're not going to work eventually. What other things can happen sometimes by default or the way things will just evolve? For example, the borders. You know, there's talk in Syria that it will be soft partition. There's talk about that in Iraq and in Libya as well. Does the region have any resources or ways of dealing with this crisis that doesn't mean an all-out war, you know, an all-out forever war? It would be nice to think so. Mm. <clears throat> and it is also very easy to be disheartened by what is going on. Um, I think that, um, you know, we've seen a, a huge humanitarian crisis that is ongoing. We've also seen remarkable resilience still on the part of people in Syria remaining. There are pockets of quiet. 
uh, people have been displaced but are making do. They haven't become refugees yet. With uh, refugees who are doing remarkably well under this very adverse circumstances. Um, I think, by and large, people want to solve this. And certainly the information that comes out of Syria is that people are searching for, for solutions still and are looking for the international community, such as it is, uh, to come and weigh in. Um, I think the, uh, in Syria there was a, uh, um, sort, of a, a um, sort, of, sort of a gratitude for the Russians to come in, in a way, because someone was acting decisively. Mm. We, can, we can agree or disagree with what the Russians are doing, but at least there was that. And now the uh, agreement between the United States and Russia is, is building on that. I think what, if we look at what the solution might look like beyond a political process started by these two powers and then really by Syrians themselves, is some way to accommodate the countervailing interests and, and claims that people are making and that they've been allowed to make once a dictatorship is, is, has crumbled, basically. Um, and crumbled? Well, crum well, I mean, the, 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 the dictator is there, but the in Syria, but the, but the institutions are crumbling, they're very weak, mm. and it is, it is anyone's guess uh, that if and when Bashar al-Assad goes, and sooner or later he will go, what is left and what can be preserved? And this is a key question. How do you govern a country? Mm. And, and I think what, what we're seeing through the, the, the situation on the ground in many different places in Syria, but you can also look at Iraq or in Lebanon, which have very weak governance structures, is that people are actually doing quite remarkably well by themselves using their own wherewithal and their own, and their own uh, means. And I think in the end we'll need to come to some kind of decentralized system, and I don't mean a mm. partition kind of system, ethnically defined or, or defined by religion, but, uh, but based on local communities where people can start um, building up again and build a new political system. And whatever that will look like, I have no idea. It's too far away, but it has to start from the ground up. Mm. And I think the basis is already there. It's certainly not, the, the overall structure is no longer there. So it cannot start from there. Mm. And just because we sh just want to mention an another element which hasn't been mentioned, but it, sh we sh it should be here as part of our discussion. The threat that everyone says we should all be working together, but in fact doesn't seem to be br bringing people together to fight a common threat, which is Daesh or so-called Islamic State or ISIS the way mm -hmm. it is. I mean, the, you know, Stephen de Mastura, when he took over the job, said at least when it comes to Syria, but it could also be now applied to Libya and Iraq, is that this is one thing which is going to bring the sides together because they have a common enemy. Even that wasn't enough. Uh, and there's always the allegations of who's working with who. How do you see that working uh, through the crisis as we've already discussed it? Well, you know, um, the United States clearly is focused on, on, mm -hmm. the, on, on Daesh, on the Islamic State, uh, and on Jabhat al-Nusra, the uh, Syrian branch of al-Qaeda. I think the, uh, for everyone else, uh, Daesh is the second enemy, and they have got a, a more important one that they're fighting directly. And this is what is creating uh, the problems and the proxy wars that are taking place. But I, I, if you look at, uh, and I think we have to come back to this, uh, I hate to put it in sort of cold... Uh, power terms, but that is what we come back to. The, I mean, the values and the moral voice that the elders bring is critically important. But in the end, it is about also about Russia and the United States coming to an agreement. They both have the Islamic State as an opponent, and for Russia it's very important. Russia has other priorities as well. But what the other thing they have in common is that they both want to preserve some kind of state system in Syria mm. that can provide some kind of stability beyond the changes that, that will have to take place. 
And, and I think uh, that is also something very important to, to build on when the United States and Russia uh, move forward on this. And that is something that, the, because n n no one in the region except the Islamic State and the Kurds want to get rid of the borders and of the, this, the state orders that mm. were created exactly 100 years ago next week. And, um, uh, and so there, there can be common ground on that as well. There is an enemy that that everybody has, maybe not a priority one, but everybody has, that's the Islamic State and these radical groups. And the second is that you, you want to maintain still this order somehow. Maybe it's too late, maybe not, but there is the, the wish, the desire is there. And so in order to do that, you need to rebuild something that mm. can hold together this more decentralized system. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that offers some hope. But there, the, you're actually absolutely right. I mean, this is probably the one thing that, I don't know whether you agree, Doctor, the one thing that they all agree on in Syria, except perhaps for Islamic State, is that the state has to be kept. No one wants Islamic State to march on Damascus. The Saudis agree with that, the Iranians, the at Americans. Long at, long, at long last. Yeah, they want yeah, to, they want uh, to, yeah. they want to. It wasn't the case a long time ago, you know. Uh, you, you, you want something. Look, Syria is not going to be divided. There is no, no base on which to divide Syria. They, the, the Syrians were very proud to say that they are a mosaic and they want to remain that mosaic. And they can remain that mosaic. How do you move out of this? If you stop the flow of money, if you stop the flow of weapons, you already uh, you know, will, will, will do a giant step towards ending the war. Once the war is ended, the Syrians you know, they are quarrelsome people all the time. They have always been uh, quarrelsome. They will continue to quarrel, but within, within a peaceful state. And rebuilding what has been destroyed will take a very, very long time. Uh, but if, you know, again, we go back. If, if the Russians and the Americans can bring their, all their allies uh, to go along with them, then I think we'll have, we'll have a, a very good beginning for something that's not going to happen uh, you know, overnight, but it will be much quicker than people think. So if you want something hmm. optimistic, hmm. there you are. You don't because cause if we are looking for those small pinpricks of, of light, I mean, we are at a time in the region where at least they're talking in Syria, mm -hmm. at least they're talking in Yemen, at least there is a political process, a difficult, fragile one in Libya. I want to ask all of you, just with a show of hands, do all of you think, as you look at the world now, we are where we are, do you f feel that given at least as the pretense of talks, that we're back, we're in an area, we're in a moment where it's about managing the conflicts and it can sort of, it'll be managed and kept at its current level? Or do you fear actually, that actually it's going to continue to get even worse? How many of you feel that we're reaching a moment where perhaps we've seen the worst, we've seen the worst and perhaps there'd be a way of trying to deal with the crisis? How many of you feel, feel that? That we're getting to managing the crises rather than seeing it even worse. Oh, and how many of you are kept up at night because you think, "My God, it's going to get even worse." <laughs> oh dear. So, oh, wrong. Most of ODI, in fact. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, tough questions. We've talked about the Americans and we talked about the Russians and Lecter had a, a sort of talked about the Europeans and about the, re the problems in the region. Europe. Europe is supposed to be the home of democracy and values. They're now dealing with a huge crisis that they have never seen since the Second World War, and they are not doing very well. Mark. Uh, sorry, not Mark. Sarah. Uh, Mark, sorry. 
So what, when you look, when you at Odium, think of humanitarian policy, this emergency on Europe's doorstep, and when they come to resettling the refugees, whether or not to take the refugees, do walls come up or do walls come down? I mean, how do you see this crisis un unfolding? Do you see that as getting worse, or do you think Europe is going to find a way to deal with it? It's interesting that you call it a refugee crisis. You know, I often say to my colleagues, Europe doesn't have a refugee crisis. What we have is a crisis of European solidarity. It's not a crisis of numbers. I mean, the numbers are insignificant compared to what we see in the region. So Mr. Brahimi was saying um, how, how many refugees are in the region, the vast majority. 86% of refugees globally are in the countries that neighbor their country of origin. 50% um, of the displaced and the refugees are hosted in the Middle East. Um, and that's globally. You know, those who arrive to Europe, they're really a small amount. And surely Europe could do better in terms of upholding, you know, those principles and those values that has been calling other states to uphold for a very long time. You know, Europe has always made very strong pronouncements about the asylum regime and made demarches to, you know, countries that were hosting large numbers of refugees for a very long time. And now, you know, with the... Uh, policies or deals like, you know, the deal with Turkey, we are, you know, really um, showing the worst side of, you know, hypocrisy, really. You know, there are many countries that host refugees in large numbers. They're teaching us a lesson in terms of morality, in terms of humanity. And unfortunately, we're setting a precedent. I mean, look, you know, just two days ago, the announcement of the government of Kenya, you know, thinking of closing the camps of Kakum and Dadaab, the host hundreds of thousands of people. How are we going to ask, you know, as European countries, Kenya not to do that when we are not welcoming refugees anymore? And yet we have a lot of examples from around the world of how much benefit refugees do bring to our economies and our societies. Every study that has been done from resettlement studies in Canada, in the US, in Australia, but also in Uganda shows the value that they bring in terms of economic benefit, but also the values in terms of, you know, when they're socially integrated, that they bring in terms of diversity in the society. Now, the key element is investing in them. It doesn't happen, you know, by default. You know, there have to be policies that really support the refugees, you know, to make this contribution to society like Germany is doing, like Sweden has been doing, like many countries have been doing you know, globally for many years, um, it, refugees will not be deterred by the kind of policy we're putting in place. But some, some, I mean, it is Europe's crisis, and you do say it's a crisis of solidarity, but it's underlined that European values differ by European country, and some Europeans have different values than other Europeans. If, hung, just to say, if Hungary and Poland insist that they are simply not going to take any more refugees. It's not a question just of the leaders, but that people in their countries don't want any more refugees and don't accept the statistics you mentioned. Is it then incumbent on Germany to take even more, Sweden to take every, even more? I mean, even Britain is not taking that many. Canada has the luxury of being an ocean apart and can take in more and can be a bit more choosy, but they are opening the door to refugees. So how do you see this developing then, since yeah, I mean, there isn't a Europe? Mr. Anand said it is a global yeah. crisis, and clearly there has to be a global solution. But even within Europe, I think, you know, the, 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 if you want, the media are dominated by the lines of populist parties, unfortunately, 
tend to have you know the the last word at the moment on this debate but actually i am not so sure that you know in so many countries even in hungary in poland uh, people don't want refugees because you also have a lot of volunteers a lot of people that are actually helping refugees including in those countries we have you know 50000 little organizations and groups of volunteers have sprung up all over europe that are actually doing the work that a lot of the institutionalized you know international ngos are not doing quite at the scale that is required in europe but people are moved, you know, by the stories. They are moved by a sense of solidarity. It's just that, you know, they're not being supported by the political leadership that is required to make choices that are more courageous. But I so think there are... What would you say to Federica Mogherini, who, who, or any of the other European leaders, they came up with this plan to resettle 160,000, was it? And they have settled a fraction of it. And they had a big London conference uh, for Syria for 20 billion, and now... 1.5 billion has been raised of that, so 19 billion to go. So the the, the words are great, but the reality is not. Yes, we should be ashamed. Yeah. That yeah. would say to her that we should be ashamed of our actions, mm -hmm. because we cannot turn our back on a crisis that is so deep and so profound. Um, when you know many other countries are clearly supporting refugees so much more significantly than we are doing, we need to do our share. Other countries outside Europe need to do their share, but you know this is incumbent upon all of us, and we cannot shy away from it. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I think the one area, they have been, there's been a little bit more effort into trying to, you know, to patrol the coast, but that, of course, is a, is a security response, but they haven't done what the UN said. You have to have screening. You have to deal with this as a proper refugee crisis. If some of them are migrants and decide at the borders or decide somewhere in the region who's a refugee and who's not, if you have place for migrants who are seeking jobs and those decisions should be made. Um, in my profession, we say, thank God, we only have to write about it because it is, <laughs> it, is, it is difficult to. I want to just begin by opening it up to all of you. We want to try to pick up on, on some of the threads. And if you want to raise your hand and say who you are, either we can pick up with the political side of things, with what the, how Lakhtar has set it out, or with the refugee side. Um, Thank you very much. My name is Mareike Shamiris. I'm a research fellow here at ODI. I'm always intrigued by the suggestion of the toolbox. Mm. And I was wondering whether um, maybe Mr. Bahimi particularly could could talk us through whether you think that is a useful image. Because a toolbox <laughs> always... It's his image. <laughs> I saw well, it from him. <laughs> but, but a toolbox always implies that you have a very clear kind of problem. And you can pull out certain tools. And somehow there's some engineering behind it. And I just wonder whether really that, that helps us to understand the other point that you make, which is analysis can be wrong and then it leads to wrong policies. Mm. If we think of all of these as grand engineering problems, does that really help us in trying to find the solution? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to take one more. Someone, gentleman behind you. Uh, Richard Cotton, and I work for the Iraq Britain Business Council. It's oh, promoting good. international business in Iraq. The, well issue we, the, issue we, the issue we come across all the time is corruption in high mm. places. Um, it just seems to be stopping so many efforts to get private enterprise going, and I just wonder whether that isn't something that we should be targeting. Mm, okay. Just, I think I'll take one more. I'm liking these questions. Yes, this gentleman. Coffee uh, and starting point. Uh, sorry, right. sorry, Jack McConnell, House of Lords. Coffee uh, and starting point was to make reference to the wider region, not just the immediate region, and to say this is really a crisis that's affecting 
from one end of North Africa right through to Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, and I just wondered if any of the contributors wanted to say anything about that wider context. My hand was up as a pessimist when I'm normally an optimist, and it's more because of the wider hmm. scenario, even if this immediate crisis can be better managed in the short term. I worry that the factors elsewhere, Israel, Palestine, North Africa, hmm. Afghanistan, Pakistan, well, makes the whole situation... Bel Bel uh, Brussels, Paris, London, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yes. Lakhtar, the Lakhtar Brahimi toolbox. Uh, you know, first, uh, Kofi Annan's first point was Norman Freeman, not... Uh, <laughs> uh, having said that, yes, you know, we, we, we uh, you know, the international community has, has a toolbox. They have, they have a lot of experience. They have faced, you know, problems that are similar. No two situations are alike, but going from one crisis to the other, you do uh, have you know, experience and you do have you know, that's, that's, uh, that uh, notional box or boxes that you, you, you can use. But the, 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 the tool, the, the main tool really for situations like this is the Security Council. Mm -hmm. The Security Council, if it really speaks in one voice, uh, and supports, you know, people, you know, I mean, Kofi remembers that in Afghanistan in, in seven, when he asked me to go to, I came back to him in seven, in, in two years later, and I said, it's enough. We have done everything we can as Secretary General and, and his envoy. But the Security Council is not interested in Afghanistan. So, you know, we cannot go anymore. We we'll go back to the Security Council and tell them, you know, if you really think that there is something for us to do, we need your support. And here, you see, they have been, they have been divided. Uh, they have been, I mean, they have been the victims of this very, very wrong analysis, some of them. Not Russia, by the way. I think the analysis of Russia was right from the beginning. And they have built these wrong policies. And they have taken those policies to the Security Council. And they have built alliances, you know, they, you remember the London 11. Hmm. Uh, I, I told all of them that, you know, uh, you, are not, uh, you, you are not united yourself. And you are trying to, to unite the Syrians and, and, and so on. Anyway, so the Security Council is really the main, the main place where, uh, you know, things start and things, uh, things end. Just, just on picking up on that, you know, when we were talking before this, you know, if I may, if I may that we were, we were talking about the Security Council. But for example, you take uh, the attack on a hospital in Aleppo. And the question was, who did it? So everyone said, well, who has planes? It has to either be the Syrians or the Russians. So the Syrians say, we didn't do it. And the Russians say, we didn't do it. And they usually throw in an allegation that it must have been the Americans who did it. Well, we have the technology now to, to say who did it. Does there have to be some research, uh, uh, information gathering? Does the Carter Center have to, you know, get all the, the GPS out, the satellite imagery out? If you go to the Security Council, as you said this, Kofi Annan, everyone will say, I didn't do it, I did it, and it, it will be gridlocked. Is there a way to help the Security Council do their business so that, you know, pointing a finger of blame? You know, uh, uh, first of all, you know, it doesn't need a plane to hit uh, uh, a hospital. Maybe it has been done with a missile or something. Uh, 
but you are absolutely right. But it is the Security Council that can do that. It is the Security Council that can order a, uh, an investigation and demand that we know we need, we, we absolutely need to know what has happened in this, uh, in, in this incident. Um, you know, perhaps we are, we are being a little bit uh, unrealistic in expecting the 15 members and especially the five permanent members to speak in one voice day and night and every day and so on. But I think, you know, uh, I, I, I go back to, you know, the Russia and, 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 and the United States. Uh, they themselves speak of P2 and P3 now. Uh, there, are, there are three countries on the one hand, uh, the Westerners, and uh, Russia and China on the other. I think if, if they really, uh, you know, as I told you, if, you know, you, you are worried about uh, uh, President Assad and his position and so on, what if the Iranians and, 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 and the Russians go and uh, you know, it's enough. We are not going to support your, uh, uh, your war anymore. What will he do? How about, you know, all on the other side, the uh, many, many uh, uh, armed groups that are there. Again, if Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Americans, the British, the French say, you know, finished, we are not going to finance you, what, what will happen? The, all these people will tell you, okay, what's the alternative? Let's find a solution. So, you know, the, the, the tool in the toolbox in this situation is really uh, the, the, the Security Council and on their behalf, Russia and, and, and the United States. It's a question for the, the, the wider region. Um, Helen, do you want to pick up on that? Because, you know, the threat of the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, I mean, Pakistan has been dealing with Al-Qaeda, Taliban, various groups for so long. Uh, and I think Pakistan has spent more time creating them than dealing with them. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> just to pick up uh, for a minute on what um, uh, Lakta just said. Um, no, that's true. No, that's true. And, uh, it would be think, funny if it wasn't tragic. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yes. I don't think it's a secret anymore. Yes, you know. But when we speak about the Security Council, you said what can be done to help them. They are the ones who have to help themselves. Mm. They have enough authority. Look, if what we are saying should be hmm. and is not at the moment. How it is, is is different from what we want it to be. If what we want it to be was unrealistic, then their mandate is unrealistic. How can that be possible? How can we say that so many years ago when the Charter of the United Nations was constructed and the Security Council came uh, up as an institution, as a central point of that charter, and a mandate was given, they were stupid at that time to give that mandate. Yes, they may not succeed always. The point is, they have to act. Mm. And when they act, things start happening. Look at Darfur. In Darfur, because it was a Security Council mandate, there was much more that happened than would usually have happened in such situations. The case was sent to the ICC uh, uh, by the Security Council using their, their trigger mechanism in the, in the International Criminal Court uh, statute. So a lot of things can be done. The point is when the Security Council makes up it mi its mind that things have to be done, others rally around mm. it. And, and then things get, ha get, to, get to be done. And who talks about Darfur now and who pays attention? This, uh, the problem is that the world is exhausted. There's so many 
protracted crises. That's another question. Yeah. And you were talking about, you know, this widening of crisis. Uh, there is, a, of course, a common trend there, the thread of uh, Islamic extremism, which, I mean, I come from a country where I've seen religion being used mm. to grab power and to obstruct mm. progress, social or otherwise. I think now that has become a global phenomenon. Mm. It stepped out of the uh, Afghan situation in the 80s, and everybody, it is like a domino effect. And I think the human nature is such that you take uh, bad examples mm. and really feel that the, these, these can be used for mischief uh, everywhere. So this is, I think, something that we all share. This is something we all have to confront. But we have to confront it with some kind of uh, commitment. Ifs and buts in this question will not help us. Hmm. Can I come in? Uh, Which I also want you to come in on the, the corruption because no, no, it, exactly. yeah, because yeah. it does actually raise it brings us to discuss another part, which we haven't discussed, is that you know the responsibility of leaders in the region. I mean, look at Iraq, for example, that you spent a lot of time looking at Nabadi coming out and talking about corruption. He's been overwhelmed now. I mean, mm -hmm. that particular question, you know, the, this gentleman who would be. A, out in Iraq investing if it wasn't yeah. for the... <laughs> and maybe he is anyway, but uh, <laughs> there's business to be done. But um, the, um, uh, I want to connect that question with the question about the larger region because mm. they, they are linked. And I first want to explain my pessimism vote because that's linked to that as well. Because if you ask me, do you think that with you know, Syria, Yemen, uh, at least there's, there's pro uh, Libya, there are processes, uh, does it give for hope? Have we turned a page? I might vote, yes, I agree with that. But if you say, what's the state of the region uh, overall? Um, do you think it is improving or is, is it going to get worse before it gets better? Then I, I think I, I vote that way. Because the, um, the problem is, is that, yes, we may have turned a corner in the states that have had the worst of it, where civil war has broken out as a result of the failure of the Arab Spring or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. The, but there are a number of states that are terribly fragile, and it is because of a crisis of governance. Mm. And the Islamic State is just a symptom of that. Exactly. Um, and the corruption is, 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 is a symptom of that. Um, and that crisis is extending all the way throughout the region, and I'm not sure where you start and where you end, because and it, uh, you know, it gets very blurred. But the thing is, is that uh, the crisis of governance is so deep that states that are still standing, such as Egypt, maybe Jordan, maybe Tunisia for sure, even though it's seen as a shining example, are terribly fragile. Saudi Arabia, terribly fragile, and could collapse tomorrow or next year or, or five years from now. And it will compound the humanitarian crisis of refugees uh, by magnitudes I don't want to mention. Um, and, and, it, and it will lead to uh, a change there as well. Um, maybe they have to go through it because it is very hard to reform these very sclerotic uh, governance systems. They have outlived their, their, their shelf life, essentially. Um, but, but it makes me pessimistic because I think they have to go through it uh, and create new orders, which I think will have to be, simply because this, the model has failed, will have to be more decentralized systems. But how exactly it will shape up, nobody, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yes, please. The um, violations of IHL and attacks on medical facilities and the potential role of the Security Council. Because while it is true that in Syria we may or may not know who has hit a hospital, there are many other instances where we know very clearly who has been responsible, you know, Kunduz in Afghanistan or, you know, Yemen. So I think we also need to be honest in recognizing that until we really reform the way in which the Security Council operates, 
we can't expect the you know, Security Council to intervene in certain crises and not in others. Uh, I mean, this is what, at the moment, you know, angers every humanitarian. I mean, while there are clear responsibilities, nobody is being held responsible for, for them. And so, you know, some, some countries ahead of the World Humanitarian Summit, but also in negotiations, are trying to advance the notion that perhaps there should be a suspension of the veto in case of mass atrocities or, you know, other violation of IHL. And that's something that needs to be seriously entertained because otherwise, you know, the the potential of the security council to really be used remains non-existent. I'm going to take the privilege of the chair to, to ask a question that was put in my mind, um, in the, let's say, in the last week. And I want one of the other elders, well, the wise men who are with us to, to respond. Is that I won't say who because I'm, I'm a journalist who keeps her word, but a prime minister, I, I spoke to a, a leader of a European country in the last week. Um, and I talked about Syria, and this person said, well, once we get a new American administration, we will have uh, a new president who will become more engaged, who will lead an effort, Jimmy Carter's already, President Carter's already shown me his answer, um, that we think that will either be, we don't want to get into whether it's going to be Trump or Clinton, but that there will be a new president, and once there's a new American president, that person will become more engaged, and that will help spearhead a new international engagement in the Middle East. Do, President Carter, did you want to respond to that? Do you think, we're, we're talking about how should the world respond. There's been a lot of discussion about how Barack Obama has not wanted to get more involved. Russia has become more involved in such a way that some of the, even some of the Arab states are saying we wish that Russia was our ally and not the United States. Mm -hmm. Looking ahead, do you think there will be a, a change? Well, I think, uh, I agree with Lakdar that Russia has been right about Syria from the very beginning. Mm. The United States has been wrong mm. until the last few months. They've changed. And now that uh, Russia and, and the United States are cooperating, I think the whole world ought to, ought to give them credit and support their common effort. It's mm. very fragile. And a lot of people still condemn Russia over and over for Ukraine and so forth, and so do I. But I think that, uh, that Putin has reached out to the Western world and said, why don't we take the leadership? Uh, the elders were with Putin about a year ago. And Putin said then that the only way to get started on Syria was to get the United States and Russia to cooperate and invite in Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Iran. Since then, they've, they've expanded that, that group. But I think we ought to give them full credit for it. And I would say that other members of the Security Council ought to try to solidify what the United States and Russia are trying to do. Uh, one thing is to prepare a... Uh, a transition plan for Bashar al-Assad, say for 18 months, to lead him from his present dictatorial constitution to a constitution that would be uh, minimizing his influence, but, but you know, not to condemn him or send him to prison, which he would not accept. So the, 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 the plan for what we need to do is, is there, even during the transition period. And, and the, the Russians and, and the Iranians say from one point of view to another that they are in favor of seeing Bashar eventually be forced to step down. But I, I don't think that uh, they're ready to say that publicly. But I think to go to the United Nations Security Council and get them to agree on this, that there will be a transition period and that we need to lay out a, a new constitution for Syria that would permit honest elections, the Carter Center would be glad to monitor the election, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, but these are the kind of things that, that are potential solutions to the problem, and, and the only ones I know. Mm -hmm. 
So we were working, the courtesans working very closely with, with Russia and with the United States, uh, and, and we were trying to put together the amendments that, that need to be made to the existing Syrian constitution to permit that transition to take place. But, but that's, that's uh, almost an unavoidable process to bring peace to Syria, in my opinion. Mm. And would a greater American engagement help that if it, there was a compass coming from Washington? Would it help? Well, nobody knows our elections. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. But I think that... Because uh, there are some who argue that, you know, the Saudis will say, well, actually, because the Obama doctrine was of playing less of a role, now there's a Salman doctrine that the, the, the region is taking the greater role. And we've seen that in Yemen and yeah. Syria with different consequences, of course, but... Well, you know, mm. when Saudi Arabia decided to attack Yemen, I happened to be in Saudi Arabia to see King Salman then, and, and of course the United States went along with and supported mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia. I think that, that's one factor that ought to be cleared up, and, and that's kind of a remote conflict between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia that should be cleared up, but that, that could be done as well. But I think Saudi Arabia should be should have been condemned because they attacked uh, mm. attacked Yemen. But but those those kind of direct violations of, of a peaceful, relatively peaceful environment should be addressed. But but I I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with the American election. I'm not going to try to predict about it. You know, no I'm a Democrat it. by yeah. the way. And, okay. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Capital D and small D. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But anyway. Uh, I'm not sure that no matter which uh, one of the candidates is elected, there's going to be a, a, a deeper commitment to cooperating with Russia and working for peace than Obama has been trying to do in the well, last few months. He has. John Kerry has to credit to him. He's John Kerry is superb yes, in every possible Lavrov, way. Yes, taking every opportunity. And now. I think Lavrov and John Kerry have done a superb mm -hmm. job, yeah. even when they don't get adequate support from, from higher levels. Okay. I think Kofi Annan, did you want to say something? No, I, I just wanted to say that if um, they expect the next U.S. president or administration to get involved actively with troops on the ground and more action, I don't see it happening. Mm. I don't think the American people want it. And none, uh, whether it's uh, uh, Hillary or Trump, I don't see either one going that uh, route. So we need really to work hard. And as uh, President Carter has said, we are lucky to have John Kerry and Sergei Lavrov working that well together. And we should really encourage them to do as much as they, they the can. The time remaining. The yeah. time remaining. Because uh, even when a new president comes in, it's going to take a while to get their policy going to go through all this. And Syria may not be the highest item on the agenda. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Let's take uh, another round of questions. Yes. Oliver Davis, International Crisis Group. Oh. Um, <laughs> we've, we've set this up. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to broaden the scope of analysis a little bit beyond the Syria issue that we're facing mm. right now and look less at solving the internal problems and more at the global policy response um, because it seems like the Arab Spring, if for want of a better term, was a crisis of transition and political succession. Um, so what what can the world do, the international community do, to better identify 
these issues and, and better handle them uh, rather than going along with sort of an assisted revolution in the countries, throwing our weight behind one player or the other. Um, and particularly when these crises have begun, do, do you think that we need to address our model of stabilization, which seems to be defining how we approach crises? Um, and, and I suppose there's two ways to go. Either it's the right approach and it needs to be done better, um, it's the first step, or in fact it's flawed. And what we need to do now is focus less on going for internal stabilization and more an immediate res response externally between the different actors. So I, I wonder if, if you see that. Hmm. All the order. Addressed. Yes. Thank you. Hilary Ben Shadow, Foreign Secretary. I wanted to come to the question of the uh, Security Council. I very much agree with what you said about the French proposal on the use of the veto in certain circumstances, but it seems to me that the first question is, is there the will to do anything? And sometimes the threat of the veto gets in the way. And the second problem is, who's going to do the work if the will is found? And the question I wanted to ask was about the possibility of building up regional capacity to act. Because mm. I think part of the fear in the Security Council is they agree something should be done and then they look at each other and say, okay, well, who's going to do what? Mm. And I think the African Union is an interesting example because you look at what they did. I mean, Burundi was their first joint operation, then Darfur, what they're seeking to do in Somalia. And of course, the, the countries in the region where there is conflict have the greatest incentive. The problem in the case of Syria, of course, is the countries in the region are funding and fueling the conflict on either side. And I'd be really interested in comments about whether building that capacity is one of the ways we might be able to unlock a will to act on the part of the Security Council. Okay, and this gentleman. Thank you. Uh, Mehdi Al-Khatib, I'm currently interning at Chatham House. Uh, my question is more directed at Lakhdar Brahimi and uh, possibly the elders. Uh, I was wondering, considering the regionalization of the Syria conflict itself and uh, many other conflicts such as Yemen and so on, I was wondering uh, whether you think an Iran-Saudi rapprochement would be the best solution mm. towards stabilizing many of the conflicts in the region. And if so, how exactly would you enact it and what would this uh, rapprochement look like? Is that for your Chatham House paper? <laughs> key to it. It's absolutely key. Uh, military intervention by anybody is not good. And our recent experience, uh, I think, demonstrate that. Russian intervention in Afghanistan was, was, was catastrophic. American intervention in Afghanistan was you know, not successful, to say the least. American intervention in Iraq was horrible. And Western uh, intervention in Libya was, was catastrophic. So I think military intervention should be you know, the last option, and only if duly authorized by the Security Council. Sarkozy and uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy leading everybody into Libya the way they did was, was not beneficial for anybody. Uh, 
So you know, I would, I would, I would not, not accept that. So what, what we want from the Security Council is to show political will and uh, you know, willingness to work together, and perhaps ultimately think of military intervention on on behalf, you know, duly mandated by the Security Council, and really as as a last as a last uh, as a last resort. Um, You know, in, in I think Syria, uh, uh, yeah, well, uh, regional, regional, the, the the African Union, the African Union. I think we should give credit to the Africans. They have an organization and they want to make it work. Uh, they they try. You know, they don't always succeed. Uh, their attempts are not always. Uh, you know, done the right way, but they are really trying. They are really, really trying. The Arab League is not there yet. So, uh, I mean, what what kind of regional uh, uh, capacity you can you can build in? Uh, we, I mean, we are very, very far from from that uh, situation. Uh, I think the Arab League needs uh, needs to 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 really start to exist. Uh, and then you know they they would uh, do uh, even though I think Kofi will agree with me that their first intervention in Syria was rather effective. You know that that uh, military group that they, they they sent there came back with uh, w with a, a good report, and I think they 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 were uh, if they followed followed their, their you know their first instinct. But they changed. They changed its course, and they immediately said, "No, no, go away." Uh, and they went to Kofi Annan. You know, so, uh, uh, so uh, you know, where the uh, local capacity is is not there. I think we we do need the Security Council uh, more than. The other thing is, you know, I mean. To, to be to be uncharitable. It is understandable that you make a mistake in your analysis. You know. After all, the president of, of of Tunisia fell in three or four weeks. The, the the president of Egypt, big Egypt, fell in less than a month. It is it is understandable that you 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 expect the president of Syria also to fall <laughs> fast. That that's 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 okay. But it takes you five years to realize that that's not happening. <laughs> uh, that is a little bit, uh, you know, un, you know, difficult to 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 understand or or or, or accept. But now we are there, huh? you know. But, but you see, this is the the regional problems that we have. Huh? Uh, everybody, I mean, I think Kofi was the first one, or I don't know, or I did. We we'll say there is no there is no military solution to, to to the problem. Slowly, everybody repeated with us that, but nobody believes in it. Nobody believed in it uh, until quite recently, where the Americans and the Russians are now saying, you know, with confidence, yeah, there is no no no, no military solution. We want to. Uh. So um, yeah, you know the. Iran, Saudi one, because there, and just, 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 just to make a point, I mean, there is, there are signs that 
Iran doesn't agree with Russia. But you have Ali Akbar Veliati saying, again, there is a red line, that we do, we want Assad to stay. That Iran is divided on, yeah, Russia sure. is willing to say, well, we can find someone else besides President Assad to guarantee our interests, and besides we have military bases there, now we're okay on the ground. Whereas Iran isn't, you know, Iran is not so confident about losing President Assad. Which is to our third question about Iran and Saudi. Uh, yeah, I mean, the short answer is that you are absolutely right. If the, <laughs> if the Iranians and the Saudis could get together, quite a few of our problems will be solved almost instantly. Uh, that is not going to happen tonight. But I, I think, uh, you know, again, the international community and even a group like ours uh, should not accept that this is not possible. Uh, you know, Iran, and, Iran and, and Saudi Arabia are going to be neighbors for a very long time. Uh, and they have, you know, they have got to find ways of uh, coexisting. There are problems that have existed for a long time already under the Shah. Uh, this is, you know, not, not new. But they were, they were you know, they, they were trying to manage them and they were helped for, uh, in, in trying to manage them. Something has gone wrong uh, uh, last few years, and there again, you know, if you want, uh, uh, you know, they, I mean, this Shia uh, Sunni thing, the 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 the, I think the origin, uh, the, the the origin of sin is really the Iraq-Iran war. Khomeini came back from France, wanting to be the leader of the Muslims, because of the war he decided to become the leader of the Shia against the Sunnis. Uh, so, you know, we have got to work our way back and out of, uh, of that, uh, that, uh, that heritage. Uh, <coughs> again, you know, I don't think that Muslims can accept that we are going to have a 100-year war uh, between Shia and Sunni. Something that we didn't even have at the very beginning when the, the, problem, uh, the problem started. So, uh, you know, you are right. Iran and Saudi Arabia have, um, could have the key, at least for the beginning of the solution of our problems. Uh, they do not look like walking that way immediately, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, they will have to one day. Did you want to say something? Because there was a question about stabilization. There's been a lot of, of a, a, a lot of re research and um, regret about the stabilization in Iraq and Afghanistan, the two big wars of the last decade. I'm sure at the ODI you've been looking at the international engagement of how you do it better when you try to put the country back together again. Just a, a short answer, if you'd like a reflection on yes, that. Yes, I don't think we can really point out to any stabilization strategy that is really worth. And part of it is the way stabilization has been concept conceptualized. I mean, there are so many objectives in a stabilization strategy often at odds with one another. You know, it's counterinsurgency, it's counterterrorism, it's peace building, it's development, it's humanitarian. It's all conflated together. There isn't a very clear aim and the objectives often, you know, because they're in contradiction, don't allow really, you know, the, the strategy to be ruled out properly. But the biggest problem has been that it's also been used almost as a one-size-fits-all in, you know, most context. And these, uh, you know, transitions are really messy processes. They are deeply contextual. And if you don't put the analysis of who are the players on the ground, how they operate, the alliances, the networks, you know, how a society evolves, there is no, no process of stabilization. But, you know, elections will be the 
Yes. Oh, well, elections have been used as a panacea everywhere. I think, you know, they often worsen the situation on the ground rather than improve it, unfortunately. And again, it's something that is in our paradigm. In, you know, as Western actors, they are familiar with, you know, a certain concept of democracy and, you know, transitional process. But it's not necessarily what people in this country, you know, they are affected by crisis, see as the way out of a particular situation. And We're coming to the end. I just want to give the chance to the... Uh, if any of the other distinguished wise men and women from the elders wanted to have a quick, quick word into our thing. I know Matteo Tassari always says this is a solution for every problem. He doesn't believe that there's no problem without a solution. But would um, either Mary or Gro or Mart, would you like to say something before we draw to a close, or are you happy to defer to your colleagues in the, yeah? I have to take up your challenge. <laughs> When, when I and my wife and our son moved from Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, to New York in, in the beginning of 77, for me to take up the Namibia issue, which took time up to 1990 before they get, got their independence. I came to a United States, which was example of having egalitarian policies. So. In, in, in the poor families, the young boys and girls knew that they could get a better education than their parents had got. They even had, 77 in the United States, capacity for bipartisan foreign policy between Republicans and Democrats. Now, more than a year ago, economists wrote an article and there was a subtitle, it looked around the world because they didn't feel anymore that the United States was an example that could be utilized for market economy anywhere else in the world. And there was a sub nice subtitle, if you want to experience the American dream, go to Sweden. <laughs> now, I, I come from a neighboring country, and they could have mentioned any of the Nordic countries. But I'm, I'm coming to the point that if we want to avoid conflicts in the world, then we have to push for egalitarian policies all over the world. And I think it's totally wrong to talk about uh, Western values, because this young man who killed himself in, in Tunis, he's, he talked about global values, and they are global. When any country joins the UN, they accept while doing that many values, and we have not held them actually accountable hmm. of doing what, what, they, what they promised when they joined the United Na Nations as a member state. And, and therefore, my, my point is that I hope we in Europe at least learned now from the refugee crisis that we have to try to solve those conflicts mm. when they come. Because it's, it's much, it, it, it saves so many lives. We have seen now half a million people killed in Syria. It, we could have solved them in, in 2012 already, what is happening now. So we have to speak very candidly on what the responsibilities of all the member states are and how they have to treat much more fairly and justly their citizens, give decent education to boys and girls, 
avoid that there are not so many young people who don't have any hope for decent future. So there's a lot of work that we can do. Let's join the forces. Thank you, Marty. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right that the refugee crisis has concentrated the minds of European and Western leaders on the need to resolve the crisis of the Middle East because if we don't want to go to the Middle East, the Middle East is, is coming to us. And I think if there was a way to summarize our discussion today, I think to take uh, a phrase which was already used by someone else, yes, we can, is the kind of, is the, is the motto here or the rallying cry from all of the distinguished guests that we've heard from today and even from some of your questions. But I suppose the big issue is, you know, will, will the world use its, its power and its institutions? And maybe that's a question the ODI will be looking at. So I think it's time to hand over to Marty Porsi for the last comments. Um, thank you. Um, thank you, Lise. Lise, that was great. You are an absolutely amazing, outstanding moderator. No, no, I'm so thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not looking forward to the next time I'm asked to chair any discussion. Um, so my name is Marta. I work here at ODI um, on issues of governance, security, and in the last year in particular, migration. Um, I take away two um, things from tonight's debate, and they are slightly contrasting. I share Lisa's sort of optimism and the yes, we can um, spirit, and I did put my hand up in favor of we've seen the worst of it. And that's because if Lakdar Brahimi tells me that Lavrov and Kerry know what needs to be done, <laughs> I feel reassured. Um, it seems to me that knowing that the analysis was wrong and that that led to wrong policies, but we now know which analysis was right, is a good place to be, as is a good place to be where we're all agreeing that military intervention is not on the cards and we enter a period of tough, but at least political negotiations. Um, so, um, so that's for the, the, you know, the vote for the optimism. I'm much more worried about what I heard about solidarity and humanity tonight. And what strikes me um, is that all of us in Europe and the European states and the European unions are not the first in line to help provide solution for this crisis. And it was interesting that, as we recognize that Europe faced a crisis of solidarity, actually that's leaving us at the periphery of the political landscape too. Um, so not being able to deal with a, a crisis actually leaving us pretty powerless. And you know, we've heard a lot about the US and, and Russia and the regions tonight, but not much about you know, the European states and the European powers. So I wonder whether it's time to look elsewhere for solutions. But I'm also reassured by the resilience of Syrian people and other people, I'm sure, in the region, as of the idea that there is a lot more that can be done with regional actors in the way that we have learned from Africa and elsewhere. So mixed feelings, but a strain of, given the topic of the conversation, it's not bad to leave the room with a sense <laughs> of hope. Um, so first of all, just to finish the, this absolutely unique night we had, we had with all of you tonight, uh, let me, on behalf of ODI, thank Lise, of course, and our esteemed panelists, so Lakhtar Brahimi, Hina Iliani, Sara Pantoliano, and Joost Ilsterman, for their, I would say, very honest and insightful um, contributions. has been a real inspiration to listen to your experiences and your wisdom. I'm also, I would also like to thank our guests, our audiences here in the room, but also all over the world online, the elders, their advisory council, and all of you who join us this evening. A very big thank you to the team at the Elders and ODI, expertly led by my colleague Rebecca, who's done an absolutely amazing yeah, job in the, last, in the last few weeks to put all of this together. I'm about to invite you all to have a glass of wine, but 
but to get there, you need to wait for another couple of minutes. Well, I invite our distinguished guests, the elders and their advisory council to leave the room through the door on the right where everyone else please remain seated where there is a bus that waits for them for their next engagement. <laughs> Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.